What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the Against All Odds podcast. I'm your host, Matt Sheldon. I have no guest today. It's just me in my living room by myself. <laughs> it's kind of sad, but uh, I'm, I just thought I'd go through and do a Q&A podcast. So you guys submitted about 25 to 30 questions on my Instagram. So I'm just going to go through those. I picked out some of my favorite ones, go through those, and hopefully answer some pretty good questions. So let's roll the intro and let's get into it. Okay, first question is, how do you think journaling has helped your career? So if you guys don't know, I've been journaling for six and a half years now since when I dropped out of college back in 2014. I bought a journal and I titled it My Path to Pro and I just started journaling in it and it started writing like what was going through my head at the time, how my training was going, talking about my goals for that day, that week of training, that month, that year, five years from now, 10 years from now. And just really just kind of treating that as like a diary where I just put in my thoughts and what was going on. And I just thought it would be a cool little memento to have, whether I made it pro, I didn't make it pro, if I had a 10 year career, four year career, I just thought it would be such a cool little thing to look back upon in 10 years. So I started that and I think over those six and a half years, I've been incredibly consistent in writing in it at least once or twice a week. Um, and it's just been going really, really well. And I think that the benefit that it has for me is first and foremost, it's like almost a form of therapy. I found that when I'm in the hardest or the lowest stages of my career or really stressed out about something, whether that is me being a free agent and not finding a team, me getting cut from a trial or turned away or going through an injury or something like that, it's just, it really is like a form of therapy to go down and write all your thoughts and just put it on paper, like all everything you're thinking. And just like with that knowledge that nobody, you know, is going to read this besides you and maybe you, your future self. And I just think it's so nice just to write freely. And I think, you know, that therapy and what it does for the mind, I think is just really, really beneficial. And then as well as like, I think that it's, it's huge for me, whenever I'm getting stressed out about something now, or I'm starting to get to a low, I can go back and read upon like my earlier journal entries back in 2014, 2015, when I was struggling even to sign smaller semi-professional contracts and, or just like going through that low of trying to sign that first pro contract and all the stress that came with that being undrafted and everything. And I can just take a step back and be like, look how far I've come. And I think that's, incredibly motivating to see that and to read that progress that's that's been going on over the last six and a half years. It's almost like a form of, of vlogging pretty much, except nobody else really sees it. So it can be even more personal. Um, I just love it. And I really, really recommend everybody to start one and try to be consistent with it because at the very least, I think it's going to be very cool to read when you're 30 years old, 40 years old, 50 years old. And, and one day I really want to take, I've already filled up a full journal. I'm on my second one. I've almost filled up the second full journal now, but one day, like the goal I want to, uh, give that to like my kids, hopefully in the future, just as like a little gift. Like, yeah, this is back from 2014 through 2025. This is like my path to pro, my pro career, you know, read it. And, and I think it's just a cool little insight that I, I think I would love that if my dad had that or something. Okay, next question uh, is biggest learning experience of your career. There's a lot, a lot of, of 
huge learning experiences that I've gone through. Um, I would say a major one is from injuries and, and going through like a lot of the lows that I had of your career is very long. And I mean, like you guys that are listening to this right now, I don't, I think the average age uh, of the audience is between like 16 and 22. Like that's the main group. You guys are so young. And if your career can span until you're 32, if you're 16 right now listening to this, you have another full lifetime ahead of you. Your entire life, 16 years, you could still have another 16 years of playing. So one bad season, one bad injury, a set, any setback in the moment, it can feel devastating. But in the huge timeline of your career, it's just a little speed bump, a little blip. Like I remember feeling absolutely devastated when I had to go into surgery for the first time for my sports hernia back in 2017 and just thinking like my career is ruined. Like I I'll, I'll be, it's going to be so hard for me to get a contract. I'm going to be a free agent. I'm never going to be able to get back to the pro level where I want to be. And it did take a while. It took me, I think ended up being 10, 11 months until I was fully playing again. And it took me pretty much like a, a year and a half until I re-signed at the fully professional level again. But I mean, now I've been playing at the professional level again since that injury for three, four years. So it's just, it, it, looking back on it, it just seems like such a short period of time, that injury. But in the moment, it was just so devastating. So I think that one of the biggest learning experiences that I've had is like your career is very, very long. And these setbacks, you know, once you've gone through a few, you just know that it's really not that big of a deal. And just keep pushing, keep working, and you're going to get back up to a high whenever that is. But you will get back up to a high. Um, yeah, I think that's one of the biggest lessons I've learned. Next question. Advice for D3 athletes wanting to go pro. Steps you believe would boost their career. So I do 100% uh, believe that it is harder for D3, JUCO, NAIA uh, student athletes to get to the professional level just because there is so much attention on the D1 and even D2 levels. So most of the recruiting and the scouting does come from those top two divisions. And so if you are not, you know, even a top team in the D1 level or at the D2 level, I think the best thing you can do for your career is to get out of that situation. And it, you don't have to leave your school, but I'm saying go and play for a NPSL team, a USL League 2 team. Go and just broaden your horizons and play for other teams. Get on other, uh, get on other teams so that you can have new coaches see you. You can play and perform for you know in a, in a semi-professional league. You can also meet new contacts and make new connections. And honestly, now that I'm thinking about this, that would be my advice for D1 and T D2 athletes as well. Don't just rely on your school to get you to the pro level. Get on another team, especially the USL League 2. I think the USL League 2 has so many connections and paths and routes to the professional game. It's huge if you're trying to make it there. So that would be huge, huge piece of advice. We'd get onto a USL 2 team and perform there. And then I would also say since you're not being as heavily recruited at the D1 level or D2 level, I would definitely say that your highlight video is going to be even more important. So be sure your games are being recorded. Be sure that you're getting that footage. Be sure that you're making that a, a good highlight video because when you want to leave that school and you want to push on and try to get a professional contract, the first thing teams are going to ask are, let me see your CV, where you come from, and then let me see your highlight video. 
And if you're going, well, my games weren't recorded or I don't have a highlight video or whatever, then I go, okay, well, <laughs> we're not, I don't want to take a risk on you. I'm not going to bring you into preseason or I'm not going to bring you in for a trial if you don't have a highlight video. It's so, so crucial. So definitely get on more teams, get playing. And it's just crazy the amount of connections that you're going to build from that. Um, and then also too, if you're a D3 athlete, like, and your goal really is to play pro, it might be seriously considering once you're performing at the D3 level and you have your highlight video to leave that school and get into a D1, D2 atmosphere. I know school is, is important and some of the D3 schools are amazing, amazing academic schools. But if your goal really is to play pro and you have the opportunity and you have a, you've come in off a good season, get into a D1 or D2 program. It's not necessarily always gonna mean that you're gonna become a pro there, but it is gonna increase your chances. Okay, next question. How do you improve mental sharpness slash decision-making, et cetera, in the off-season training solo? Uh, honestly, I don't think that you really can improve like your decision-making, especially like tight space decision-making, all that stuff, when you're training by yourself. I know you can replicate it, and I know you can do things in terms of like apps or those little blaze pods that light up and you have to make decisions on whatever's lighting up. But I just don't think that it's the same as doing a, a, a professional level rondo or like even doing small sided. I just don't think there's any substitute for that. So when I'm training alone and I've been in instances, I've had off seasons where I'm back in Portland, especially back in like 2016, 2017, and I don't know a single person there who's still playing who wants to train and I, it's just all on me. I've been in that situation, but when I am in that situation, I'm working on my weaknesses that I know I can improve by myself, crossing, finishing, first touch, passing. And then I'm also working on like my uh, physique and my, my athleticism in the gym. So I'm focused on areas that I know I can improve by myself. Is that ideal? No, it'd be ideal to have other teammates and doing stuff like I did, you know, these last couple off seasons where I've kind of grown my network and know more people. I think that's ideal. And combining the two where you have your individual moments and working on the stuff that you want to work on alone, but you're also having the team atmosphere where you are forced to really work on your decision-making and your speed of play. I think that's the ideal setup. So if you are by yourself in the off season, I really don't think there's much you can do in order to make to really improve that decision-making. And my advice is, look, try to find people to train with, really try, put out Instagram stories, contact a friend of a friend of a friend, contact coaches, see if you can find even a, a personal, you know, one-on-one -on -one coach or something. But if you really are by yourself, instead of trying to replicate that decision-making process, just understand that you're really never going to replicate what it's like to play in a rondo. So instead, work on your first touch, work on your passing, work on your shooting, work on your actual technical skills, and then when you are in a group, work on that decision-making, that speed of play then. It's kind of like one-on-one -on -one defending. If you're by yourself, I don't think it's, I think it's a waste of time to work on one-on-one -on -one defending and like shadow defend like nobody. I think it's way better just to work on your technical skills, and then when you do have a partner or you're in a team setting, that's when you really work on the one-on-one -on -one defending. Next question, uh, what's your advice to a player from Europe who is wanting to play college soccer? I'm guessing you're saying college so soccer in America. Um, my number one piece of advice for this is to get in contact and work with an agency that specializes in sending Europeans 
over to America for university. I think that, that that's going to be my biggest tip. And yes, it will cost money. Like I think they range anywhere from like 500 bucks up to like three, four grand. It is expensive, but those agencies are, I think it's almost, I don't want to say impossible. It is very, very difficult to do it alone because now you're working with like, okay, do all my credits transfer? Uh, what about SAT and ACT? How do I take that? How do I send those into schools? How do I get in contact with these coaches? How do the coaches even understand what the level is that I'm playing at over here in Italy or over here in Spain? Then you might even have a language barrier as well. So I think if you can do your research and find an agency, they're everywhere over in Europe too, especially in England. There's so many agencies in England that specialize, or even the UK, that specialize in doing this. Get in contact with them, invest in yourself, and then use that agency to help you with that process of getting over to America. I know so many European players that have played college soccer in America, and 99% of them, I, I don't even know if I can think of anybody who did it by themselves. I think every single player that I know that's done this has gone through some sort of agency to help them with that process. They will take care, a good agency will take care of your highlight video, your CV, your academic side, your ACT scores, your SAT scores, will take care to make sure that the credits are transferring. They will take care of everything. Plus, they also have a network, the best ones do, have a network of college coaches that trust them. So they can be like, hey, you know, uh, UC Davis coach, uh, you, I've sent you three players. They've done really well. You trust what I'm saying. I got another player that's just as good. He wants to come to your school. And the UC Davis coach is going is to say, look, I trust you. You've sent me three great players already. Sure, send them my way. We'll get them situated. And it's going to make the process so much easier. You can definitely do it on your own, and you can definitely try to reach out to, to coaches and schools yourself. But you're going to quickly find that it is very, very difficult to do that as a foreigner. Next question. Um, how would you say your technical ability has improved since you have become a pro? Uh, I think, well, first off, I think my technical ability or just my overall ability as a, as a, as a footballer is just improved so much since when I signed that very first professional contract, uh, with orange County blues in 2016. So was that five years ago? I think over these five years, like it's just, I look back at some of those videos back in 2016, 2015, that when I was training or, or even playing in games, my game analysis videos, and I almost like cringe at it because I'm like, ah, oh, my technique was so bad. Oh my God, it looks so slow. I look so stiff on the ball. I'm watching the games. I'm like, my decision-making is terrible. And I think that's such a good sign because that means I have, have I've improved. I've improved a ton. And, um, I mean, I think if you go back to like my very first vlog that I did and I think I did like a Ronaldinho drill in that very first vlog and the speed that I was dribbling through the cones looked like it's like underwater compared to like when I when at the time I, I was in uh, like quarantine in Tulsa last year and I was just filming the Ronaldinho drill and I compared the two videos and it was just so drastically so much, so much better now than it was that five years ago. So it, I think I've improved a ton and it's hard. I know, you know, it's, it's tough to really say that when I've been in the USL for like five years, I mean, it came into the USL in 2016. I'm still playing in the USL, but I really do. Even on the field now, I feel like the game just really has 
slowed down immensely when I'm playing and I feel so much more confident on the ball. I just feel like a different player. And I'm hoping that that will continue as I progress into the next, the later stage of my career as I go into my 30s. Next question, uh, what are your goals for the next few years? Uh, I hope in the next few years that I'm still playing because I'm 28. I'm actually turning 29 next month in August. So I am, I'm not like oblivious to the fact that I am starting that transition to the tail end of my career. I think body-wise, physically, I think I could play until my mid to late 30s. The question is, would I want to do that like in the USL? Because if I was getting paid $100 million a year and I was in one of the top five leagues in the world, like it would be a big incentive to do that. But in the lower leagues of the USL, I just don't know if that's something that I would want to continue doing into my mid to late 30s. So I think in the next few years, number one, the first goal is I really hope that I'm still playing. Uh, and then the next goal is I hope that I'm playing at a higher level than I am now with the league, the team, whatever. I mean, nobody wants to just finish their career, even have their whole career in the USL. Everybody wants to push up to the MLS. Everybody wants to go to a higher league. So my goal is, is to push up. It's still to push up into the MLS, to push up to a higher league. Do I think that's going to happen? Like there's a difference between, is that my goal? And do I think that's going to happen every year that I get older and get closer and closer to 30, that possibility becomes more and more slim. And again, I'm not an idiot. I know there's not many MLS teams looking for, you know, a, a 30 year old right fullback that's played his career in the USL when they could go and invest in a 17, 18 year old fullback that is starting to get reps era, starting to get games in the USL there for sure would go with a younger player. Um, but it can happen and I've seen it happen and I'm going to work hard, train hard and just keep on hoping for that. So I hope that I'm playing. I hope that I'm playing in a higher league than I am now. And another goal is that I, I hope that I'm just continuing to uh, put out good content for YouTube and, and for Become Elite. I think that Become Elite is a big uh, part of my life and I absolutely love it. And I love the business side of, of everything that I'm learning with this as well. So I really hope that I'm continuing with that. And then also on the, the family side, like by then, I mean, I'm getting married this year, uh, this December, and I'm hoping in the next few years too, that Mimi and I start a family so that and now we're starting goals of like family life as well. So yeah, I think, you know, I got a lot of goals, a lot of things that I'm looking for business side, family side and football side. So I'm excited to see how things, uh, things progress. Uh, next question. How do you train your endurance in off season and preseason? Uh, I, one of my biggest, I think it's really important to look at you as a footballer and ask yourself, what do I need to work on? And if you're going into off season and you are looking at yourself and going like, look, everything's there except for the fitness, then I think that you should really work on improving your fitness over the off season. However, I think for the majority of players, I think that fitness, especially coming out of a season, is probably not going to be the problem. And most of the time, you're going to want to work on that technical side, maybe the athleticism, maybe the strength, something along those lines. And I think during off-season, that's the time where you kind of cut out the fitness, you maintain it a little bit, even let it slip a little bit to focus on the areas that you really want to work on. For example, for me, fitness, I've always been a very fit soccer player. I've always been fit. I've always been... Um, 
uh, like a, a worker, just just always working. Work rate's always really high. So for me, when I come into off season, I'm like, look, I want to work on my crossing. I want to work on my first touch. I want to work on my speed of play in rondos and in, in, in small sided games. Get tons and tons of work into that. And then I also maybe want to work on some injuries that I have, like some tendonitis or some, you know, some just getting the body back to where I want it to be physically. And so I'm focused on that mainly in the off season. And then as I come closer and closer to preseason, about three, four weeks out from preseason, I start adding in a little bit of extra cardio just to get ready for preseason. But even then I usually come into preseason. I'm usually top three fittest guys on the team. So again, like I don't even really need to do that much fitness to do that. So that's what I do. I really don't do much fitness in the actual off season. And, and my recommendation for the majority of players out there is to not work on fitness either and instead work on the technical side or work on the physical side, like in the gym. Uh, but again, you really do have to look at yourself a player and ask, is fitness something that I really do want to make a push this off season? Because I was the, the least fit player on the team last year in preseason. And now I want to come in middle of the pack or even above average. So yeah, that's just what I do in my advice. Any advice for personal soccer trainers, how to best help young players succeed? Yeah. I've never had a question about this. Um, so this, I'm excited for this. I think that the number one thing you can do is ask that player what he or she really wants to work on. I've gone into uh, personal one-on-one sessions with uh, technical coaches and they put me through an awesome session and I love it. But it's again on areas that I'm like, don't really want to work on. Like, again, let me give you an example. I've done like technical training sessions with coaches and they we're working all on like the physical side, fitness, jumping up, doing headers. When I'm like, that is the like part of my game that I do not need to work on. If I'm going to be spending all this energy, spending money, spending time, I want to work on the crossing. I want to work on my first touch. I want to work on speed of play, decision-making, that kind of stuff. And the, and the technical coach kind of just doesn't even care about what I, what my goals are and what I see as weaknesses for my game and where I want to spend extra time working. And they just put me through a session to put me through a session. So I think my first piece of advice coming from a player is talk to us. Even if younger players, younger players know what their weaknesses are. And they know what they should be working on. And even if the player says, I don't know, then go, okay, well, what, what is your weakness? If you're on FIFA right now, what would be some of your lowest rated skills? And let's work on improving those areas. You know, I think just asking questions and getting those players, like their feedback of what they want to do is like my number one tip for technical trainers. And then I also think that, uh, my second piece of advice would be simplicity really is king. I've, again, I've done these sessions with technical trainers and they, you know, I'm a professional player coming in and I can kind of just already sense that they want to really impress me or they really want to have a great session so that we have the most complicated passing patterns, the most complicated drills. And out of the hour that we have together, 20 minutes of it is explaining the pattern, explaining stuff, talking, trying to, trying to learn the drills. When instead I'm like, look, like I could get so much more out of this if we just do something more simple where it's not, it's less about memorizing the pattern, but we're still just getting in just as many touches, if not more touches. And I think especially with kids too, like professional level players are going to improve 
from just crossing and finishing drills. They're going to improve just from one touch return passes and working on that. So don't overcomplicate it and don't add in all this equipment just because it looks cool or just because, you know, you think that the more complicated the pattern is, the, the better the drill is. I'm big on like, let's keep things simple. Let's get a lot of good touches in. Let's get a lot of good reps. I don't want to sit here and spend my time learning the, the, the pattern, uh, try, trying to sit here for 10 minutes while you're explaining to me this, all the little variations of the drills. And I respect that. And I like that. And I do think that you should be pushed mentally, but there is a line where it kind of crosses where it gets a little bit too overcomplicated. So that's what I would say. Talk to the players, ask them what they want to work on, and then tailor the session to work on their weaknesses or the areas that they want to work on. And then two, don't overcomplicate it. Uh, next question. Why do you think players that were once considered great players at the youth slash college level don't make it pro? Uh, at the youth level, I would say because they, they stop improving. They, they stop developing because there's many, many players that are, you know, really, really good U15 club players or U16, 17 academy players, and they have all the potential in the world to go play pro, but it's almost like they're content there. They, I mean, they kind of look at that moment right there and they're like, look, I'm at the highest I can be. I'm at a professional academy. And they stop really getting outside their comfort zone and, and progressing as a player. So I think like just not continually trying to improve and to work is one of the biggest reasons that you at the youth level, why those players don't pan out to become pros. And I also think that a lot of times, especially at the college level, especially as you get older and you get into the twenties, mid twenties, even the early twenties, life starts to get in the way. I can't tell you how many amazing, amazing players had to stop going after their dream because they got a girl pregnant and then now they have to care for a family and playing semi-pro soccer and not even getting paid for that is not going to pay the bills for their baby. And I've seen many pros like even get their college degree and go, look, you know, I'm not going to be drafted right now. I could probably have a career in the USL, but do I want to grind for years and years and years to hopefully make, you know, $50,000 a year when I can go out of college to a desk job right away and make 50 K a year. And you guys might be sitting there at 16 and going, that's so stupid. I can't believe that. But life, your priorities in life do start to change as you get older and older. You know, nobody wants to be a 25 year old per, uh, player and make, you know, 10 grand a year. That's not fun. It's not a good life. And I, I respect it. There are players that do that, but there are, are a lot of players that also don't want to do that. So I really think life does start to get in the way. And the same thing for like youth players too. I know many youth players that go to college and they, a lot of players get their first setback, like the mental side of the game. A lot of players will get their first setback in terms of like being benched when they get to college or they'll get cut from a team or even players out of college, they'll go to their first trial and they'll get rejected or whatever. And a lot of players just can't handle that. They've just had success, success, success their whole youth career. And then the very first time they, they reach a setback, the very first time they get rejected, they get to get cut from a team. They're now a free agent or whatever. They just can't handle it. And they're like, look, I failed. I'm done. Because it's devastating to them in the moment. But it, they haven't had that of like, the career is very long. I'm 21 right now. You know, I still have 10 plus years of playing. So I think just a majority of players just end up stopping 
quitting or for whatever reason, because life does get in the way. And I, I've talked about this before, but I call this like, you have to survive. Like I always say this, and you, when you're 18, 19, 20, 21, those ages, that is like the great filter. So many players just stop for whatever reason. And if you want to become a pro, you just, it's sometimes you don't even have to be the best out of your friend group or whatever, but it's just about surviving that filter and continuing to play until you're 24, 25, 26. And if you can keep on surviving, keep on playing, your odds of continuing to progress as a pro, just keep on improving and improving. That's what I found. And you'll see that too, especially even if you guys are in high school, watch how many of your friends are great players, but just decide, I don't want to keep on doing this. I want to have a, I want to go to college and just be a student. You know, it, it happens so much. If there is one drill that you recommend doing daily, what is it? Um, I would say rondos. I mean, this is like a team, small group setting, but I think if you look around the world and you look at the pros, what the pros are doing every single day, usually their sessions are changing up a lot. But what stays consistent is a rondo. I think that like it's one of the best drills that any age, any level player can do from the youth level, even if they need to take unlimited touches and the space is huge and there's only one person in the middle to the professional level where it's one touch fast, fast paced, two guys in the middle or whatever. I just think that Rondos is just like such a great warm up tool. It's fun and it just has so many parts of that drill that are completely uh, applicable to the game. And if you're talking by yourself, uh, if there's one drill that I would recommend doing daily, um, I would say to look at your game and kind of like, that's tough. I mean, I think that it's variety is really important with training. I think so many players are looking for like, oh, what core routine should I do every single day? Or what drill should I do every single day? Or what is my daily routine? I think a big part about like the game is that it, there's so many great drills out there, so many things to do that it's almost bad just to do the same thing every single, every single day. Um, and I think that if you're by yourself, like I wouldn't say, Oh yeah, always do this every single day. It's kind of like, just mix it up. I'm trying to think, I would say like for me, I hit in crosses every single day being a fullback. I guess that would be the drill I do pretty much every day after training. I'm trying to think of what pros do. Um, yeah, I would look at my game. If you're a striker or an attacking player, I would probably hit shots every single day. Just roll the ball out and work on finishing every single day. If you're a fullback, maybe whipping crosses every single day. If you're a defender, maybe hit some long balls every single day. If you're a center mid, same thing, and maybe some long balls, some distribution, some switching passes like that, as well as some finishing. And then if you're a goalkeeper, I would say distribution as well, long balls, side volleys, as well as shot stopping. So I think it's like looking at what you really want to work on and that you're going to get the most benefit from. But rondos and then very position specific, I guess. Uh, next question. Hi, Matt. How much did analyzing videos help improve your game? Massively. Massively. It's just crazy because like, I can't even tell you, like I remember being in high school club soccer and thinking like a game went certain ways or that I made all the right decisions or like I was thinking of mistakes or what I should have done. And in your head, when it's not filmed, you have this perception of what the play looked like or what the game looks like. And then when you watch it on film, it's completely different. Like I can't even describe how many times I'm playing and I'm 
in a professional game and I'm like, I, I'm thinking the field or the people and everything is looking one way and that I should have done this. And then I look back at the film and go, no, like this is the actual, the, the, the better option. The film, like the ability to pause it, to rewind it, to slow it down and also being from a higher vantage point, it just helps you get like another perspective on the game. And it, it, it is just obvious, like film doesn't lie. I can look at all the mistakes I made analyze it, pause it, and go, I should have passed there. I should have pushed the guy wide there. I should have tucked in defensively my positioning there. I should have gone for an overlapping run there, especially if you can watch film with a coach or with somebody more knowledgeable than you or even a teammate. It's huge. Uh, and there's a reason. Like I wouldn't do these game analysis videos. They don't even perform that well for the channel. Like I wouldn't be doing them if I wasn't already doing them every single time I played in a game. I analyze that game. I do all that stuff on my own. And then I just take that and I kind of upload it to YouTube. So I think like analyzing games is like one of the biggest things that's really, really helped me. So if you guys can record your games, get them recorded somehow, watch it back and don't just watch it back where you're sitting back. You're kind of on your phone a little bit, kind of watching. No, pause, rewind ask questions, ask yourself, did I make the right decision there? Even if you have a great pass, sometimes that's not even the best decision. Always, always looking every single touch that you make and critiquing it and asking yourself, what could I have done better? And you'll see it too. I've been in games where I've done like tons of analysis, like, oh, I need to make this cross far post. That should have gone far post, far post. And then I'm in the game and I'm in that same situation happens again. And in my head, I'm like, I remember this, hit it far post now. And then I hit it far post. It's just crazy how like you pick that up and it's not going to be instant, but over the years, over, you know, even a season, you'll learn a ton. Um, next question. I, I really like this question right here. What's the smallest change you've made that's made the biggest difference? Yeah, I love that question. I'm going to say the first thing that comes to my head right now is sleep. Back in high school, college, especially college when I had tons of schoolwork and, and just everything else that comes with college, as well as even in, into like the, my first few years as a pro, I did not put an emphasis on sleep. I mean, you can even see my first few vlogs. I was waking up at 4 a.m. just to get extra work in and everything. And like, yeah, I was still getting six, seven hours of sleep, but one of the smallest changes that I've made since then, I think I probably made this change around 2018, 2019 was really adding more, like even an hour or two hours to my sleep schedule. And my goal every single morning is to wake up naturally before my alarm. If I don't, and my alarm wakes me up, that tells me I need to go to bed earlier. And it's just so easy. I mean, it's so easy to go to bed earlier, but we just all want to stay up watching a movie. We all want to stay up. Uh, we all want to stay up on TikTok on our phones or browsing pointlessly through Instagram or whatever. And it's so easy just to go, nope, turn off the phone, put it aside, go to bed. It's such an easy change. And adding an hour, two hours of your sleep is scientifically proven to improve your athletic performance. Like these studies that you read about, like even for like basketball players, their three point percentage goes up by like 10 percentage points or something. People's 40 yard dashes increase or decrease. The time decreases by 0.1 seconds, which is huge. And even like your reaction time, stuff like that is just 
it's crazy benefits from just getting one, two hours of sleep. So I think that's probably the smallest change that I've made throughout my career. And I think it probably has had the biggest impact. Even injury prevention, your reaction time slows down a ton if you don't have the full eight, nine hours of sleep. And when your reaction time is slower, that affects how you can react to catching yourself from falling, catching yourself from awkward landings, moving out of a tackle that you know is coming. It's just huge for everything. And I think that's one of the biggest things. Um, Another thing, I'm trying to think of another small change that I've made that's also had a big difference. Uh, Actually, I thought of another one. Um, tailoring my, tailoring my gym routine so that it's not, it's not all about like how hard I can push myself and I'm, and I was wasting, I'd say up until about 24, 24, 25, right around like once I started having my first sports hernia injuries in the gym, some in my head, it was only a good workout if I was sweating, if I was pushing myself, if I was pushing even the the workouts, every single set close to failure, it was all about like more pain, more gain, push, push, push. And you know, there is a, a diminishing returns. Like I was already very athletic. I was already very strong. And I think looking back at that, it would have been so much smarter instead to go easier, not even to stop going to the gym, but just go easier in the gym, hold back the weight a little bit, instead of pushing myself for that bicep curl to failure, hold back a little bit and just do the essentials, the soccer specific stuff. And then with that extra energy, stay after training a little bit longer and hit crosses or, you know, before training, focus a little bit more on that pre-activation routine. It was just, I was just killing myself in the gym with heavy weights, which I think is necessary at times, especially if you do want to get bigger, faster, stronger, but not to toot my own horn, I was already pretty big, fast, and strong. And what was holding me back to get to the next level at that point was not getting bigger, faster, stronger. It was working on that technical side. And I should have saved my energy there and put it into more technical training at the field, more rondos before training, more two-touch. Should have been more of the actual technical side. Because I remember just feeling so tired every single day. And after training, I would hit a couple crosses. I would still stay after, but I, I, was, I was tired. And I should have been smarter with how I spent my energy. So I think those are two small changes that I've made over my career that had very, very big differences. Um, the next question is, what's the most overrated misconception or myth of becoming a pro footballer? Um, I would say the biggest misconception out there is that you're going to get scouted from these amateur or local club teams or whatever to the professional level. Like you're going to go from zero to a hundred real quick. It it doesn't work like that. Most of the time, even if you are scouted, I'm not saying you're not going to get scouted. I'm just saying you're not going to go from playing your U16 local Sunday league team and all of a sudden it gets scouted and boom, now you're going straight and you have a trial with Bayern Munich's, you know, even reserve team or something. It usually is a ladder, a progression that you build up, even at the youth level. And I think that like those youth academies that are scouting, those top youth academies, they're usually typically scouting like the level just below that. You know, they're instead of scouting like the 
the academy teams, like the academy teams might be scouting the top division club teams there, or the cl- top division club teams might be scouting the second division club teams. So there is scouting going on. There is recruiting, but I just see a lot of players like that are like 13, 14 playing for their high school team going like, Matt, I don't have any connections in the pro game. I'm like, well, you shouldn't. You're 14 years old playing for your high school team and a local club team. Why would you have connections to the pro level? Right now, you should be thinking, okay, how can I get connections to the best team, the best club team of my age in my city? And then once you get there, it's like, okay, how can I get connections or how can I get trials into the academy team, a professional academy team here? And then you go, okay, how can I get connections to go one step higher? You know, I think the big misconception is that you go from an amateur to a pro. And most people, most of the time, there's a progression to a ladder. They go from their local Sunday league team to their local club team, to from their local club team to a professional academy. They go from a professional academy to maybe a reserve team of a different professional team. They go from that reserve team of a different professional team over to their first pro contract. There's progression to this. And even for me, my career, I went from local club team in Portland, even though it was one of the best in state, I still wasn't getting recruited scouting connections to the pro level, even though I was like winning state or getting second place in state with my club team. It was okay. How do I get to the college level? This was before Academy, even in the state of Oregon, that's how old I am. But it was like, okay, how do I get to the college level? Got to the college level. It's like, okay, how do I play for a PDL team or a USL league two team? How do I get into that semi-professional environment? Okay. And then I was at the San Jose earthquakes. Now, how can I get to the professional level from here? That's when you make the jump. When I was playing for the San Jose Earthquakes U23 team, that's when I was really looking to go from that semi-pro setup to the professional setup. And even then, it was hard to get connections from there. So I think the biggest myth is that it goes 0 to 100 when it goes 0, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, etc. What is one thing that attackers do that you as a defender hate? Um... I'm going to say being unpredictable. I don't think, especially as you, get, as, as you become a pro and you really understand how to mark a fast player or how to mark a very skillful, skillful player or how to mark you know a bigger, stronger player. If they're just one-dimensional and that fast player just takes you down the line every single time or that big player just tries to you know post you up every single time, or that skillful player always just does the same move and cuts in every single time, they're very easy to mark. What is hard to mark is when that winger or that attacking player on one play darts in behind me and wants the ball behind me into space. Then the next play, he starts to dart in behind me. I'm like, okay, he's doing it again. And then he stops and he checks in for the ball. And then I'm like, crap. And then so he loses me and I come in and, and, and now have to follow him in as he checks in for the ball. And then he gets the ball at his feet. And he drives at me, he uh, dips his shoulder inside, pushes the ball outside and whips in across. I'm like, okay, he's right-footed, he's gonna cross the ball now. Next time he gets the ball, he drives in at me, I'm thinking he's going line, he's going, he wants to cross the ball again, he's gonna do the same move. And then he dips his shoulder inside, but then he dips his shoulder outside and he cuts it back inside now. And I'm like, dang, this guy is all over the place, I can't get a gauge of how he plays. He's unpredictable, he's always moving. Sometimes he's tucking in and running down the line, sometimes he's, he's inside making that move in, uh, even more inside. Sometimes he's making a run in between me and my center back. Sometimes it's on my outside. He's always doing something different 
those are the hardest players to mark because you just are constantly like, what's he doing now? Where is he? What's going on? Is he going to check? Is this a fake check? Is he going to run in behind? This is a fake running behind. Okay, he's driving at me. He's going to go line again or he's going to cut it. It's just very hard. I hate it when players are not, when they have, they're multidimensional and they can do many things. It's very hard to mark. Um, how often did you do individual training as a teen? I did individual training probably three or four times a week. Uh, and I did that so much because I was in a suburb of Portland, Oregon, and all the kids in my neighborhood, all everybody was just, they were Americans. <laughs> they played basketball, they played baseball, they played basketball, uh, I already said basketball, they played lacrosse. There was no footballers in my neighborhood, except for me and my brother. And I lived in this area where it was impossible. I could not walk. The closest field that I could think of was this really bad elementary school field. And it was a two mile walk on a main, busy, curvy, dangerous road that my mom would not let me go on. So before I could drive, my only option was to just train individually or train with my brother. And especially too, at the time in Portland, my club team, which was one of the best in the state of Oregon, we only trained twice a week. That was just how it worked back then, which is just crazy to think about. But so, I mean, if I wanted to play and I was just a hyper kid that loved training, working out, doing all this stuff, my only option was to train individually. I would just do freestyle juggling in my garage. I would do one-on-ones in my garage with my brother, one-on-ones in our living room against my brother. I did one-on-ones outside with my brother in the grass. I bought this big net. It was like for golfing that you would hit golf balls into, but I would, me and my brother would just hit like power shots, like working on our technique into the net. So I did so much individual training as a kid because that was the only way I could really train as a kid. And there were very few times where I was finally, you know, got a ride dropped off somewhere and my friends now wanted to play soccer. Cause even then my friend group back when I was in middle school and high school, it was a lot of basketball players, a lot of football players, and yeah, it, those were the main sports. So when we got together, we played basketball, or we threw around the football, or we played like baseball in the in the park or something. So I just didn't. I wasn't in an area where I didn't have friends that played soccer, and my soccer teammates they all lived in different areas. Like they were from Beaverton, they were from Hillsborough, they were from other areas where different schools. So I wasn't really hanging out with those guys a ton. So yeah, that's, I, I trained a lot as a kid, but I trained a lot as a kid alone because I didn't have access to a futsal court where everybody just hung out there and played all the time. <laughs> and then I, there's, I put this question right after this one, but uh, what is one regret you have from your U15, U16 times? What you wish you did more? I wish I played more futsal. I wish I played more pickup games. I wish I played more rondos and small-sided. I just played as a teenager, as a kid with other footballers. But again, like I said, it was just impossible for me and where I grew up. Uh, now, I'm going to put this more of a general piece of advice the general piece of advice for 15, 16, 17 year olds, I'm going to say is to not just become one dimensional with how you train. Like for me, I, I trained so much individually that I really only worked on juggling one V ones and shooting. I never, ever, ever worked on passing first touch, passing speed of play in a Rondo never did small sided. So 
my advice for all of you is when you're training and as a kid, 15, 16, 17, work on everything. If Even if you are just always playing futsal, small-sided pickup games, be sure that you're also going out somewhere and working on hitting a long ball with both feet. Make sure that you're also working on your shooting. Make sure you're also working on your 1v1s. Make sure you're also working on like even freestyle tricks at times. Try to work on everything. Don't just become a one-dimensional type player and only do and only train one way. And that's like I think that's a huge piece of advice. Um, what's your biggest regret in your career? Uh, this is a tough one because I don't think I've really made any any really wrong decisions where I really regret them. I mean, there's things, many, many things, like I just said, about my youth career that I wish I could go back and coach myself or I wish I could have go, gone back and changed some things or like made myself living and closer to more friends that played football or whatever. But regret, I would say, I would say it's going to go to that, the gym. I would, I wish that I, re, I regret doing so much bodybuilding, powerlifting, such taxing workouts after, I'm going to say 20, 20 years old. I think up until that point, those workouts were absolutely vital for me. I was small, undersized, and weak. So those workouts were exactly what I needed at 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19 to build up muscle, to get stronger, to get faster. And I think those workouts and what I did in the gym when I was a teenager is a huge reason why I'm one of the fastest players on most even professional teams that I go on that I have a, like a very solid physique that I am strong now because I put in so much work as a kid. But once I built up a good, a good physique for football and once I built up a good level of strength, I was so competitive. I was like, I want more. I want to be faster. I want to be stronger. I want to keep pushing. And I kind of focused, I kept on pushing in the gym, trying to get, you know, increase my bench from 275 pounds to 285 pounds, which is just absurd for a soccer player already. But I was so focused on that that again, like I said, I spent a lot of my energy there and I should have been spending my energy, you know, more so even on the field. And I think that was a regret I had. So from 21 to 24, those three, four years, I think I went overboard in the gym and I should have used that extra energy, that extra, extra effort and put that into playing rondos, playing pickup, playing other stuff at the field. But again, like I was in situations where I guess when I was in college, I had a lot of players that I could have played pickup with. And I did, I, I still did that all. Like I was always playing pickup with all my college friends. I was always doing extra. I was always at the field doing the most, but I even, I just, again, I think I could have even done more at the field and less in the gym. But I, I don't want, you know, as I'm saying this, I don't want you to think that I was like just a gym rat and I would never trained soccer. I was playing soccer, you know, five times a week with my uh, college team. I was doing extra training sessions two or three times a week with some of my uh, college roommates. I was also playing, you know, uh, games all the time. It was, I, ha I was playing a ton, but I was also working out of the gym five days a week. I should have worked out in the gym three days a week and then increased those sessions a little bit longer, you know, from an hour and a half, maybe to an hour, even an hour, 45, two hours. That's what I probably would have done. Um, next question. What advice do you have for players in a relationship playing away from home? Uh, 
I would say that it it's going to be very, very hard and very difficult, but it's going to be worth it. I, uh, I shouldn't say it's always going to be worth it. Um, I would say that like, if it is the right person, then it's worth the, worth the wait. And like when, when me and Mimi were living apart, we lived apart, kind of like bounced back and forth. We only saw each other a few months out of the year, all during 2016, 2017, 2018 it was probably about 50, 50. And then from then on 2019, 20 and now 2021, we're finally living together fully. But for like two and a half years, we were kind of like doing long distance and we always would talk about it. Like, like I would always say to Mimi, like, look, like it's very, very important to me that I go after my pro career. My pro career is the priority in my life right now. And for you, she was trying to get her interior design degree. She was working as an interior designer as well. That is the priority for you. You have your priority right now. I have mine. We also want to be together, but it's just not, the timing is just not right right now. We never broke up. We stayed together the entire time, but I always would say like, if it gets too hard, we can break up, but just know like, I am not going to stop my career and I do not expect you to stop your career at this point for us to be together. And we both agreed that like we wanted to stay together and we both agreed that we were going after priorities in our life and that hopefully in the future, we will, we will both be able to go after priorities in our life, our careers, and still be together. And that's exactly what happened. It took two and a half years, but from 2019 till now and for the foreseeable future, we're both in our careers of our dreams. I'm a professional footballer. Mimi is an interior designer. And now we're living together full time. And it's like, it's amazing. I absolutely love it. But it does take time. So for you, if you're in a relationship, same thing, understand that you're going after your career, your significant other is going after theirs or going in school or whatever they're doing. That's their priority. And you know, in the future, hopefully things will work out and just always leave it as an, an, as an option that you, either of you can break it off at any time if it gets too much. But Mimi and I just always were like, no, like I'd, I'd rather stay together and be long distance than not be together at all. And that's just kind of what we did. But from what I've seen, I've most long distance relationships with professional footballers, I would say don't work out to be honest. It's very, very, very difficult. But the ones that do, I think are, are stronger because of it. That's my sappy, <laughs> my sappy answer for that. Um, how important is a relationship with your keeper or teammates off the field? Uh, this is a hard one because I can definitely see the benefit. I, I do think there is a benefit of being close with your teammates off the field and just being friends with them. Um, but I don't think it's necessary, to be honest. I mean, some of the best on-field connections, partnerships I've ever had have been with people that I just don't like vibe with. Like I, I just don't hang out with, like I'm, I'm cordial. I'm nice to them, but we're just not really friends. Like we're just kind of like coworkers to be honest. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with, you don't have to be friends with all of your teammates or just because you're not friends with somebody is going to mean that now your chemistry on the field is going to be off. I don't believe that at all, especially as you get older. I think that as you get older and older, I mean, there's players that just are with their family all the time. And like, I probably like we're, will rarely, rarely ever just hang out with them um, because I'm living my own life. They're living their own life. But 
on the field for teammates that this is our job, you know? And I think that maybe at the, at the collegiate level, semi-pro level and the amateur level, that might be important because it's not your job. And it's, it is kind of about the relationships that you build with people. But when you're a pro and it is your job, it, it just, I don't think it matters because it's, it's your job. It's like with your coworkers, you don't have to be friends with your coworkers in order to accomplish or to accomplish the goals you have for your job. You just have to work together. And I think, you know, it's kind of sad, but that is kind of like sometimes how it works at the professional footballing world. You just have to work together. But, you know, it is kind of funny. Like I'm saying that. And then the last podcast I did with Kembo, you know, we were, did the podcast. We hung out that afternoon and then I assisted his goal in that next game. I think that is kind of a coincidence. I don't think our off field chemistry, uh, had anything to do with us combining for the goal, but you know, maybe it did, maybe it did a little, but yeah, I don't think you have to be develop a relationship off the field with anybody in order to, for it to work on the field. But I don't think it's going to hurt either. I mean, I, some of my close, yeah, I'll, I have a lot of very close friends. He both here at Tulsa on other teams and yeah. But I, again, like sometimes some of my closest friends, I never even played on the field with them. Sometimes they were in my position. So it was either one of us were starting or the other one wasn't, you know? So that kind of got awkward. Uh, <laughs> why do you always sign one-year contracts? Why not two-year contracts? Well, up until this season, actually, I've only been offered one-year contracts. And that's the the reality of the professional world at the lower leagues, at the lower levels. Um, most of the time, even the MLS, most of the time they offer like a one-year deal plus an option year or two option years. So you really only are under contract for one year. And that's just how it works. I think uh, FIFA did like some study. I think the average contract length for, for professional players was like 19 or 20 months, which means the average length is less than two years for a contract. So most pros out there are only offered one, maybe a two-year contract. And what you're seeing always on Instagram with Neymar and you know Sergio Ramos and all these guys signing five, six-year deals with the biggest teams in the world, that's not, it happens. Like obviously they're doing it, but that's not the reality of what actually happens for majority of professional players. Majority of professional players are offered nine month contracts. They're offered one year contracts. Maybe they're offered one year plus an option year. And that's really how it works because there's just less of a budget and there's less of an investment into the player for the long term. And it's more of like, look, we just need to win. We need to not get relegated this season. And then we'll talk after the season. And that's just how it went. And it's funny because this year, uh, before this 2021 season, for the first time in my career, I was offered a two-year contract, but I only wanted a one-year contract, which is kind of funny because I, my whole career I've been wanting, like begging for some stability and, and really trying to get a two-year contract somewhere. And the first time it was offered to me, I declined it because being, I'll be like, again, like I'm turning 29 next month. I didn't want to lock myself into my thirties at the USL level. And I, I absolutely love it here at FC Tulsa, but I kind of understand that this is my last chance, last real push to make it into a higher league, particularly the MLS. And I just didn't want to have any strings holding me back. If I had like a breakout season, I really, really wanted to be a free agent so that I could pursue 
an MLS offer. And that was something I talked to my agent about. That was something I talked to um, the coaches here at FC Tulsa about. Like, look, I know it's, you know, kind of a slim chance of this happening, but if I do have a breakout year, I just want to have my options open so that I can pursue it if it happens. I really, I really want to make a push. But, um, but yeah, it's just funny. Like you, you, you're dreaming of a, of a multi-year contract your whole career. And then, and then you just get a one-year contract as soon as you do get offered a multi-year contract. But as that has nothing to do against not wanting to stay here at Tulsa and has everything to do with just me mate, trying to make one last push into the, uh, the MLS or to a higher league. Um, next question. How significant is the difference between a good semi-pro league and a regular professional league? I, I'm a big believer that every single league from all the way down at the lowest amateur level to all the way up at the highest professional level, there's overlap between that, the, that league and the league below it and the league above it. Like for example, in the U S there is overlap between the best D two collegiate teams and the worst D one collegiate teams. There are going to be many D two teams. They're going to whoop some D1 teams. There are many D1 college teams out there that at the highest level that can be many USL League 2 teams at the semi-pro level. And there are many USL League 2 teams that could beat USL League 1 teams. You know, the highest, the best USL League 2 teams, I think could definitely beat the lowest USL League 1 teams. And I think the best USL League 1 teams could beat the worst USL championship teams. And I think the best USL championship teams can beat the worst MLS teams. So there's overlap between every single level. So for example, for your question, um, how significant is the difference between those leagues? I would say that there really isn't that big of a difference. I mean, it, it obviously depends on the leagues and everything, but especially as you go higher and higher up from what I've seen, the differences are usually in the small details. So like as you go from one professional level to the one right above it, yes, the speed of play is going to be a little bit quicker. Yes, the players overall are going to have a little bit more quality, but usually it's just the little details that make that difference. It's not like, oh my God, this is completely mind-blowing level from what I'm used to. If you are just jumping up one level, usually the details are just a little bit sharper, a little bit more professional, a little bit more quality, a little bit cleaner. And that's kind of like what I found. So the differences is not huge. But if you're looking from, you know, the USL League 2 up to uh, the Bundesliga, yeah, there's going to be a big difference, a significant difference there because you're jumping up multiple levels. But if you're jumping up to the next highest level, the next higher level, it's just little details, little change of pace or little change of speed, um, speed of play. That's, what, that's the word I'm looking for. Little tiny details, but it isn't, it isn't anything crazy. Um, I really like this question too. How have your habits slash daily life changed in comparison to before you became a pro until now? So like basically how have your habits or daily life changed in comparison to before you became a pro until now? Um, on it, I really thought about this right before I was like about to do the podcast is because this is one of the questions that kind of stumped me when I first read it. I be, I think like sleep I added a couple more hours of sleep back, you know, in 2019, but I've already been a pro at that point for three years. I don't think there, I really had any changes to my daily life or any habits that changed. I mean, before I was a pro, I was, I had really good nutrition. I was training and working out 
almost every single day. I journaled. I was vlogging even. I I did all the same things. Like my life really didn't change from when I signed that pro contract and became a pro. I was living that life before that. And I think that's why I signed a pro because for the from I'd say god probably since I was 18, maybe 17, I had lived pretty much the lifestyle of a pro. Soccer 24/7. You know, I was training five, six days a week, games. I was working out four or five times a week. I was doing the extra stuff. I was eating right, nutrition, hydrating right, sleeping decently. That was the only thing that I think has changed. But I was doing that from all of 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, and then 23, I signed my first pro contract. And then, yeah, again, nothing really changed. I just kept on doing that, kept on eating right, kept on sleeping right added one, two more hours, kept on training the same amount, kept on just just doing all the same things. And I think like consistency is, is so huge and that's why I talk about consistency so much because the best way to improve, the best way to become a pro is just consistent training, consistent workouts over 20 years. Nothing crazy changed. You know, it's not like, oh my God, I figured out this new way to train and within a year I became a pro. No, I just was training, working out, doing that for years, decades, and then that's how I became a pro. Um, next question, how do you deal with the stress or pressure of having to perform day in and day out? This is very true. And something that like a lot of people don't realize at the pro level is that I don't want to say that you can't have bad days. All pros, everybody has bad days. Um, bad days at training where you're just not mentally there. You have bad days where your touch is off. You have bad games, but I'd say at the professional level, that really has to happen few and far between. It has to be, you have to be able to, to turn it on. You have to be able to learn that when you step up on the field, like this is your job and like you need to perform. You're getting paid to do this and you have to be able to immediately switch on mentally. It's game time. I need to be focused here. I need to improve here. You know, I have to at the very bare minimum, even if every single pass, every single touch, I mess up at the bare minimum. I need to be mentally engaged and I need to be to work. I need to be here and put in the work. And it is stressful because in the back of your head, you're constantly thinking like, if I have a bad couple days of training, then I'm going to get pulled from the starting lineup. If I get pulled from the starting lineup and then the team starts winning, I'm not going to be able to get back into the starting lineup. And if I ride the bench for the whole season, it's going to be hard for me to get a contract in the USL for the next year. If I can't get a contract, then I'm going to be a free agent. If I'm a free agent, that means I'm not getting paid. If I'm not getting paid, I don't know if I can survive. And if I can't survive, I'm going to have to go back to school and get a real job. And those things do go through your head whenever you, you know, a lot. They do happen a lot. And it is stressful, but I think it really is just about day by day, every single day, being able to tell yourself like and compete. Like today, to be able to turn it on and to, and to be able to go out there and be mentally engaged in the session. And I think that's the key. And I, I really think that like if you can't do that and you can't learn how to mentally turn it on and compete every day, you're going to be pushed out of the pro game. I've seen a lot of pros who get there for their first year, maybe their second year, and they have all these inconsistent days of training. One day they're amazing, and then for two weeks they're average, and then they disappear, and you don't really, you know, they're not doing anything in training. Then all of a sudden one day they're great again, and they just can't find 
how to turn it on every single day and, and be like competitive every single day. And those players will fall out of the professional environment. They just won't be pros anymore. So I think it's like, you just have to learn how to do it. And if you can't, you won't be a pro for long, to be honest. Um, next question. Um, how to stand out at a trial if you're playing with and against bad players? Uh, I think that for one, if you are playing against bad players and you have bad players on your team, and I've been there, I've been on trials or open combines or open trials where the, the teammates on my team and the opposing players are very bad. And on one hand, it's easier, I'd say, because you can kind of be a little bit more of a ball hog and you can stand out a little bit more and you can take on a few more guys. You can do things that you wouldn't usually do in your normal trainings and stuff. But on the other hand, it is, it is harder in some aspects because you can't do a one-two. You pass the ball, you make the right movement, and then that player doesn't have the quality or the vision to see the one-two happening. Or you cross in the ball, a perfect cross, and your attacker is not making the run. So it can be very, very frustrating to play with bad players, bad teammates and everything. Even playing against them, it can be frustrating. But my advice is with these trials is that you do have to be a little bit more selfish. You do have to be a little bit more of a ball hog. And I would say understand that the coaches that are scouting you, that are, that are, you know, that are watching you, they are smart. They're going to understand if you have good movements, you have good off-ball movements, if you're doing the right things, but the, the quality around you is just not allowing it to work. Like I've been on the coaching sideline and I've been scouting like players trying to get to college and I've, I've had a, a clipboard and I'm taking notes on players that I like and I'm watching out there. And a player will do an awesome, do an awesome move, beat one player. He passes it to his teammate. He has a great run right in behind. It should be an easy one too. He's in on goal and the player just doesn't pass him back the ball. And the guy's all frustrated. And on my notes, I'm writing like, hey, I'm seeing the movement. I'm seeing it. If you had a good teammate there, he would have played you a one, two. You could have had a shot on goal. I'm, I recognize that, but you know, but so don't stress that like it's not working out in the moment because Coaches are just looking for the idea. If you do a perfect cross into the box exactly where it needs to go, but your striker completely whiffs it or he makes a terrible run in the box, I'm just looking at him like, yeah, that's a great cross. There should be a striker there. Quality coaches recognize quality players and you don't have to worry too much. But, you know, I'm, I am going to say, you know, sometimes you do have to have in the back of your head a good pass to a bad player is a bad pass. So sometimes in those trials, I'll have an open player and as long as it's not glaringly obvious that if I don't pass to him, the coaches are going to look at me as selfish and I messed up there. But a lot of times I'm looking at it and going, look, I've already given you the ball a couple of times. You've lost it twice now. I'm just going to do it myself. I'm going to dribble here. I'm going to take this guy on. I'm going to be a little selfish here because even if I give you a good pass, you're, you're, not, you're not good and you're going to probably mess it up. So even if I give you a good pass, you're a bad player. So that's going to be a bad pass. It's kind of ruthless, but that's, that's honestly what kind of goes through my head at those trials. But be careful doing that because coaches will see you being unselfish and they'll see you taking on two or three guys. Perfect. Awesome. Now, now, now pass it, now pass it. And then you try taking on the fourth, fifth, sixth, And then the coaches are going to start saying like, is his decision-making not there? Does he not see this guy's wide open? He's doing too much. So you have to balance that a little bit. 
Um, how should you keep in touch with a college coach after sending the initial introductory email? This is a really, really good question. So, um, if you guys don't know, when you send emails to college coaches, you send a customized email to them with your highlighted CV, telling them that you're interested in their school and that you would love basically to be recruited by them. And, uh, usually you probably won't get a response, but even if you do, it's usually a generic response. And I always advise that you should be sending them follow-up emails every couple months, every three months, just to keep, you know, them keep you fresh in their minds. And the best way to do this is to send up a follow-up email and say like, hey, you know, Coach Schaefer at UC Davis, this is Matt Sheldon again, just following up from my last email. Over the past couple of months, I played in the Surf Cup and I played in the Dallas Cup and I played in these tournaments. Here's the highlight video that I, you know, created from the last two or three months of my play. Uh, I won Dallas Cup. Here's a photo of my team. Just keeping them updated with what's going on in your career. Even little things. Like I've seen players update a coach and be like, yeah, over the summer, I've been training with... Christo Michelson from Portland one-to-one soccer training. Here's uh, a little video clip of us doing some some uh, passing drills or something. Just sending them like what has been going on with your life or your or soccer for the tour for the last two or three months, and it's even better if you send a highlight video or or uh, some form of video clip. So like every three months, I would send a new updated highlight video of my club soccer games or high school games or whatever to those coaches and be like, this is some highlights from the last three months of the games, you know, take a look. And then that also for also is like a update email for them. So they're like, wow, this Matt guy has hit me up five times this year. He's sent some pretty good clips. He's obviously interested in UC Davis. Let's uh, invite him out to a, a visit, you know, or let's see him at a ID camp or something. So Updating them with video clips and highlights is huge. Um, next question. Uh, is it true that 80% of results come from 20% of your uh, activities? And then what is that 20%? I, I don't know if it's 100% scientific. I think this idea comes from like the four-hour work week or I don't know where it comes from, to be honest. But I'm a big believer in that. Like I'm a big believer that majority of your uh, results do come from a smaller uh, portion of your effort. So for example, like I even, I view this with become elite, like my business, like what's going to get me the most bang for my buck? Like what's going to grow my business of become elite bigger. And usually it's putting out a quality piece of content on YouTube. That usually is the 20% of my effort that's gonna get 80% of my results, of growing of growing my business, of growing Become Elite, of growing my brand, putting out quality content on YouTube. What's the other effort stuff that isn't gonna to lead to the best results? Honestly, Instagram content. Instagram content, throwing out Instagram posts all the time, Instagram stories, even these podcasts, uh, the little extra stuff, TikTok videos, that's great. I think that like it is more of a reach and stuff, but in terms of like really building my brand, I think like YouTube, putting out one video every week is the 20% effort that's gonna give me 80% of the results. Now I'm the type of person, I want 100% results, so I'm willing to make podcasts, I'm willing to do Instagram stories, I'm willing to do Instagram content, I'm willing to do TikTok videos, I'm willing to do you know whatever, it is to grow, become elite. But I realize that if I do come to a period of my life where my time starts getting restrained a lot, I'm going to pull back on everything and just keep on putting out what I think is essential. And that's that one YouTube video a week. Now, in terms of like my football career, 
I think, or even everybody's football career, I think that the 20% effort that gives you 80% of your results is team play, is playing rondos, small-sided games, 11 v. 11 games, futsal games, playing. I think that is the 20% effort that you put in is going to give you 80% of your results. What's the other stuff that you could be doing? Well, that's like your prehab routines. That's your activation routines. That's your warm-ups. That's your... Uh, other drills like passing drills, your juggling drills, your even your crossing and finishing drills, to be honest. Um, that's your workouts in the gym. That's your extra fitness sessions. That's your weightlifting routine. I already said that. That's your yoga routines. That's your mobility work. That's your nutrition. That's your ex. That's your uh, what else have I not said? That's even your sleep. That's your video analysis. That's your journaling. That's your uh, um, and analyzing your own games or analyzing other pro games. That's like all the, the meditation, all that extra stuff, I think gives you that extra 20%. Now, if you want to be a pro, you can't just rely on playing pickup games or playing, you know, games all the time. You have to be able to be willing to do all of that. But if it did come down to it and you have another job and you have school and you have all this other stuff and you only have an hour extra a day to try to become a pro, with that hour, I'm just going to go with my friends and play rondos. I'm going to play small sided. I'm going to go to my team training sessions and just do like the games and everything there. But, you know, if, but to be honest, that I don't think is enough. Like, and I think you really have to do the hundred percent effort for a hundred percent of results. Cause I don't think 80% of results is going to get you there, but that's, uh, that's my view on that. Um, and I think it's good to put that in perspective too. Cause it's like, yeah, everything's important. Even down to like the meditation and the analyzing pros, you know, watching professional games and analyzing a player in your position. But you know, what is the most important thing? The most important thing is playing football with a group. That is the most important thing. Playing games. That's the most important thing. Um, best way to impress a coach as soon as you get to a new team. I think the best way to impress a coach is by your body language. I think that, you know, to, to really impress the coach, it's all about body language. I mean, that's what he's, that's what everybody recognizes is first. And that starts as soon as you get to that first training session, as soon as you get to that new team, it's walking up to the new coach, shaking his hand. Hey, I'm Matt. Nice to meet you. And then going to all your teammates. What's up, bro? I'm Matt. Hey, I'm Matt. Nice to meet you, bro. I'm Matt. Hey, hey, I'm Matt. Meeting everybody, being confident and just showing like, hey, I'm new here. My name is Matt. What's up? Just doing that immediately shows all your teammates, okay, this guy's confident. He seems like a nice guy. He, you know, is not just coming in here and hiding in the corner and just kind of like standing in there and awkward. I think that's huge. And then once you get into the session immediately, I think, again, it's your body language. Immediately joining in and passing around or jumping into the rondo and just being confident with your body language, like, yeah, I deserve to be here. You know, I'm new, but I'm not gonna like sit over on the side just watching everybody as everybody warms up, you know, jumping in with your body language and showing I'm confident, I'm confident in my abilities, I'm, a con I'm confident in me as a player, jumping into the rondo, jumping in, and you know, I'm not afraid. And then as you get into the session, again, I think it's about the body language. I mean, it's all about body language. Even when you come into the passing, the passing drills, 
are you just, are you nervous and timid and the ball's coming to you and you're just like, okay, here we go. Don't mess up. Don't mess up. Receive the ball, pass the ball. Or are you popping away, popping back in, checking in, opening up your hands going, yeah, calling for it, showing people that like, yeah, I'm confident my body. I want to play. I'm energetic. I'm enthusiastic to be here. I I'm just confident in my abilities. And even if you mess up, even if that first pass that comes to you, you, it goes off your heel of your foot and pops up 10 feet, just whatever mistakes happen. It's unlucky that that my first touch was a mistake, but I'm confident that the next one won't be, you know? And I think that's going to show more to the coach in those first few minutes, first hour, than even doing something like technical wise because the technical side you never know you could have bad touches you could just have a bad day but the body language is really how you impress people first you have to obviously back that up with skills you have to back that up with tactical iq and understanding of the game you have to be a good player but one thing that's very easy to control that will impress people is confident body language from the very beginning um how does upper body gym work translate to the game i always get questions like these like i'll be doing an exercise and someone's like hey matt i see you doing like one arm dumbbell rows what is that going to translate to the field for like it will is it good to like am i doing the row in case i need to pull back a player in the box or something and i like that you're always i like that those questions are really trying to analyze the game and really trying to find how these exercises are applicable in that instance but I think it's a little bit of like, not everything is gonna have a direct translation to the game. And most of the work that you do in the gym is about just building a balanced physique, a balanced body that works together. I mean, that's the goal of the gym. You're doing upper body work in the gym, not just so you can hold, I mean, yes, it will help translate because there is, you are using your upper body to push and hold and tackle and hold off players on the field but mainly you're doing upper body gym work so that you're just, everything's in balanced. Everything is working together. You don't just want to work out legs in the gym. You don't just want to, you know, work out one area of where you think is going to immediately translate to the field. The, in the gym, you're, the goal is just to build a well-rounded physique that performs on the field that can run, jump, sprint, turn. And that, that's the goal. So you're doing the upper body gym work as a part of that well-rounded gym routine. Has YouTube affected your career in any way? Like, I don't know what they mean by this, like sold you, like stopped you or helped you getting a contract? Basically, has YouTube helped my professional career in any way? Uh, yes. And I would say that it's only helped my career. It has not harmed my career in any way. But I also think the videos that I put out, I'm putting out pretty PG videos. I'm not putting out you know, YouTube videos where it could harm. I think that YouTube can harm your career if you're putting out the wrong type of videos or you're being inappropriate and play and teams are looking that and the GMs are looking that and going, look, I don't want this player to represent my club. But I think with the videos that I put out, I think they're pretty clean. I think they're pretty PG. I think they're pretty professional. So I don't think that's going to harm my career in any way. And to be honest, it's only helped my career and it's helped my career in, I'd say there's, I'd say one major way is that like when I was a free agent after I got my first sports hernia surgery, actually, and second sports hernia surgery after St. Louis FC, and we're just coming into that 2018 USL season, I did not have a contract. I did not have a team. I was just had gotten surgery. So no teams were even going to offer me a trial to come into preseason. 
and I'm like, crap, like I don't have a team. And then on YouTube in my vlogs, I was just talking about that, like being open and honest and saying like, yeah, I'm pretty stressed out right now. I don't have a contract. I don't have a team. The USL season is starting up like right now. And yeah, I'm just pretty frustrated. And me putting that out onto YouTube, I had multiple people message me like, hey, I know some teams in the second division of Iceland. Do you want me to reach out to them for you? I had somebody from Estonia. It was like, hey, I'm from Estonia. I got some teams in Estonia. Would you like, would you be interested out here? And then I had somebody in New Zealand. And out to everybody, I always go, yeah, I would 100% be interested. Here's my highlight video. Here's my CV. Let me know if you need anything from me. I can get myself out there. I can get myself to the trial. Just let me know. But most of those emails, most of those opportunities do end up falling through. They usually don't work out. Um, because you know, the coaches or whatever, like, nope, team's full. Nope. We don't want to deal with the visa. Nope. He's a foreigner. Nope. Nope. Whatever. But that one email that was from New Zealand ended up working out. And then all of a sudden, you know, before I knew it, I was put in contact with the general manager of Waterside Karori and I was talking to Mike Hornsby on the phone. And then he's like, yeah, we could get you down here. We'll get you the contract, started talking to the coach. The contract was sent to me via email, signed it. And all of a sudden I found myself, you know, a couple of weeks later on a plane down in New Zealand. So if without YouTube, I would have not have had that connection out to um, New Zealand at all. So I think YouTube helped in my, my networking of expanding my network and getting that contract when I was kind of like shit out of luck and I didn't have any opportunities. And then other than that, it really hasn't had that much of an impact. I think that the some negatives that come along with it is like you know i'm kind of how do i say this <laughs> how do i say this right uh there's a lot of attention on me there's a lot of eyes on me wherever i go there's a lot of pressure on me so i'll come into preseason sometimes and there's you know a lot of very good players and i'm thinking man if i don't start you know there's going to be a lot of unhappy become elite fans in the comment section or like if I do start or, or for, you know, just whatever, anything, anytime you have a lot of tension on you, it can be really good and the support is amazing. But if things start going bad, like people, you know, you can see comment sections start to turn toxic. So I'm really good at tuning that out and not really caring about it. But I just don't want that toxic energy to affect the coaching staff or my teammates or the club in general. Like I'm always worried about that. And I think that's the one negative that I don't like. Like, why isn't Matt Sheldon starting? Why isn't Matt Sheldon doing this? Why isn't Matt Sheldon the captain? All that kind of stuff. It just seems very toxic to me. I don't like that. It makes me feel uncomfortable. And I just don't like that seeing my teammates read that, the coaches read that, the club, you know, social media people read that. It just makes me feel uncomfortable. That's the one negative I think. But I just go and talk, I, I just make, I kind of make it a joke and I go up to my coaches and teammates, but yeah, you know, you see the comment section. Yeah. I'm like, whatever. Yeah. I'm sorry about that. And it's no big deal. So it really isn't that negative of an effect, but mostly it's all positive and it's, it's pretty cool that YouTube can have a positive impact on my career. Okay. Let's finish these off. Um, do you think you experienced a mindset shift at a point in your career and what was its impact? I think I already talked about this. It's that shift, I'd say at 24, 25, right around my surgeries where I was kind of like, I'm not going to be spending all this energy in the gym to get up to a 285 pound bench press or to try to get to a 355 pound squat. Instead, I'm going to maintain my strong athletic physique and I, and I feel like I've done that very well. 
and I'm going to focus more on my weaknesses, the areas I think are holding me back from getting to the MLS level. And that could be quick decision-making in rondos, crossing and finishing, creative 1v1 play, those areas. Spending more time and effort there and less time and effort in the gym. But again, I still go to the gym a lot. Uh, That was the mindset shift. Next, what factors affect your decision when choosing between different contracts or college offers? Uh, Everything, like all the variables, to be honest. Like for college, when I was deciding between Gonzaga, when I was deciding between Oregon State and UC Davis, everything from the, (laughs) the, (laughs) everything from the, population uh, percentage of girls versus guys was it 60 percent girls and 40 percent guys to the location being in spokane washington or is it in california to the coaches and how i just got along with the coaches to how my official visit went and how i got along with the, the players at the team to uh my major at the school did they have engineering or mathematics type major at the school to everything I literally would try to envision myself there as a student, as a, just a, uh, a, yeah, as a student, as just a general, like friends, like who, who I thought I could have more friends or even a girlfriend there where I would see like, uh, my football career. I literally try to think of everything. And obviously the most important thing to me at that time was football. All I cared about really, to be honest, was just, is this going to be a good area for me to succeed, for me to develop as a player? And all three, Gonzaga, Oregon State, UC Davis fit that bill. So then I was worried about, okay, what about the location? Where would I rather be? Uh, Gonzaga had and Oregon State have amazing, you know, basketball programs. I love big sports. Oregon State has the the, the Beavers. They have the uh, Oregon State football team that gets like, 50,000 fans that I wanted to be a part of and and be in that fan section and everything. But honestly, it came down to just, I saw myself being happier at UC Davis down in California, more sun and just part of like, it was a a little bit better of a school in terms of like what I wanted to do. So I ended up going there and I, and I think just overall, like the overall vibe I got weighing out all the options or uh, UC Davis was the school that I was like, yep, this is where I want to go. But it was a very, very tough decision. And I would talk to my mom, like, I was like, I don't know. Like, they're all, I had amazing time everywhere. I like the coaching staff everywhere. I could see myself at all three of these places. My mom's like, you just got to decide. Like, you're never, you'll, you'll never really know 100%. So you just kind of have to go with your gut. And I was like, well, my gut, for whatever reason, is saying UC Davis. And same at the professional level, you're thinking about all the same things too, except for the school. You're thinking of like, okay, what's the money like? I guess you're also thinking about money and your life as well. What's the money like? Can I live here? You know, what, where am I going to live here? Is this a city that I actually want to be in? Um, you're thinking about the weather there. You're thinking about, okay, what's the coaching style there? What do the training sessions look like? Can I see myself developing there as a player? You ask all these questions and you just see if it's the right fit or not. And usually at the professional level, honestly, for most players, they, they kind of like have something that they're really looking for, whether that's money, whether that's like being treated like a pro, whether that's the fan section or whatever. And for me, I really care about development as a player. That's huge for me. And I really want to be treated and feel like a very, like the best professional environment I can be in. So it's very important to me. 
um, what the trainings are like. It's very important to me what the coaching is like. It's very important to me the even the fans in the fan section. I would I would definitely like to be in that area where you're with 10,000, 15,000 fans or whatever. So you weigh out all these things and you just kind of make the decision based off your gut. But again, many times it's like, well, this team gets more fans, this team, you know, I can see their training sessions look a little bit more professional than theirs. Oh, this team gets breakfast and lunch every single day. This team, you know, is from Miami or whatever. So it's, it, you, there's always pros and cons and you kind of just have to go with the team or the area, the contract that has more pros than cons. Uh, okay, last question. Here we go. Do you think that your two hernia surgeries have affected your career? Um, yes. In the immediate short term, these surgeries 100% affected my career. They 100% affected that 2018 season. It forced me to leave the USL. It forced me down to like the semi-professional level down in New Zealand. Uh, it, that 100% had, had an effect on me in the moment. In the long term, do I think those surgeries had an effect on my career? I'd say a little bit. I think I was really getting to like, I was peaking. I know I, I had a great season with Orange County. I came to St. Louis FC. I was really excited about that season. And then I just had injury after injury. And then I was sidelined. I only ended up playing 12 games that whole season just because I had so many little injuries from patellar tendonitis to a dislocated toe to like severely sprained ankles to ultimately the sports hernia surgery. So I think that like that was kind of crucial at age of 24, 25 to have a season kind of taken away from me because of injuries. And who knows if I, if I would have had like a standout season, you know, could I have gone to the MLS or whatever? Yeah. You, it's impossible. You should never think that way. But you know, at the same time, like I think the career's long and it, I bounced back and I think I, you know, at 27, I was back in the USL and back playing again. And I think that it definitely took some time to like trust my body and I wasn't really fully a hundred percent trusting my body feeling good again until that last season, 2020 season. So that is a long time from like 24 to 28, just because I had three surgeries over those years and it was tough, but, um, that's football. Everybody's going to have something like that. Every single player, whether it's a spell of free agency an injury surgery, whatever, that's part of football nobody's going to ever have that career where they never get injured or, or anything. And like I had some pretty bad like surgeries that I had to go through, but there's people who have had much worse injuries and much worse surgeries than I have had. And I even count myself pretty fortunate about that. So long-term and like, I think I bounced back really well and I don't think it affected my career that much. Obviously anytime that you're out for 10, 11 months at a time with surgery, it's going to be a big setback, but yeah, I don't think it, I think that's just part of, part of the game, part of football. Like that's just how it goes. You know, injuries are a part of it and they suck, but that's just the unfortunate truth. You know, it's going to happen and you just try to bounce back as quickly as you can. All right. Ending the podcast on a positive note. <laughs> I right, uh, hope you guys enjoyed this against all odds podcast. This question and answer went a little bit longer than I expected. I was trying to get it right around an hour. So I hope you guys enjoyed the extra like 30 minutes of question and answers. Uh, but anyway, hope you guys enjoyed it. Please like this video, subscribe if you're not subscribed already. And uh, yeah, this is the against all odds podcast. Peace. <laughs>